Welcome back to another episode of the Adam Schefter Podcast. And on this week's episode, we will be joined by the former standout NFL tight end who now will be a part of Fox's NFL coverage this fall, Greg Olson. And on June 4th, Greg's eight-year-old son, TJ, received a heart transplant. TJ was born in 2012 with a congenital heart defect that required four surgeries, including three open heart procedures and the installation of a pacemaker. Greg has talked about this on social media. He's posted updates, but he has not gone as in-depth as he has publicly in this particular space this week, detailing everything that TJ has gone through and what he would hope happens in this week of Father's Day. He was exceptional to listen to. You'll see why he's going to be an incredible success on Fox. He knows just what to say. He knows the pulse of a situation. And he's got everybody across the NFL and this country pulling for TJ and the entire Olsen family. Just an incredible story here that we think you'll get to hear today from the former standout tight end, Greg Olson. And as we mentioned, he says all the right things. There also are examples of men who don't always say the right things. And we saw a couple of those examples this past week. We saw Le'Veon Bell come out and say that he would never play for Andy Reid again. That, quote unquote, I'd retire first. Now, Le'Veon Bell came out and apologized for his comment about Andy Reid, but did say he doesn't regret at all what he said. Now, if you're Le'Veon Bell and you insult Andy Reid, who, by the way, has spawned a whole entire coaching tree that coaches across the NFL, and you're trying to get another job, what is the upside in saying that you would never play for Andy Reid, who is very well respected and very loved across the league, and basically make yourself come across that way to prospective employers. You just eliminated half the teams in the league that would sign you. Just a strange decision to come out and blast a guy who so rarely is the object of public criticism. Didn't make sense to me. Kind of weird. Not going to lie. The other comment that got some raised eyebrows was the Packers president, Mark Murphy, talking to a gathering at Lambeau Field on Thursday when he described Aaron Rodgers as a quote-unquote complicated fella. And the exact quote that Mark Murphy said is, I'm often reminded of Ted Thompson, as most of you know, just a great general manager, passed away earlier this year. Ted often talked about Aaron, that he's a, and it wasn't just Aaron, a lot of different players. He would say, he's a complicated fella. So I'll just say that. Those were the words that Mark Murphy said via NBC 26 in Green Bay. Now, again, if you're the Green Bay Packers and you're trying to convince Aaron Rodgers to come back to Green Bay, why would you publicly say anything other than how important he is to your organization and how much you want him back? Yeah, okay, Aaron Rodgers might be a complicated fella. He might be a lot of things, but there's no need to say any of this. I wonder all the time why some people say the things they do. And everybody has the right to say whatever they want. 
But some statements, I always wonder, where's the upside? Where's the upside for Le'Veon Bell? Where's the upside for Mark Murphy? What are they trying to accomplish when they say that? Our jobs are to be on television and to talk all the time. And I always try to be and probably don't always succeed, but I always try to be measured in every word that I used, in every word that I use. And again, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it always is amazing to me when I look in and see some people, some powerful positions, say the things they do and wonder what they're trying to accomplish, something worth remembering as the NFL is about to head into its quietest time of the year. And maybe people will be encountering some microphones and hopefully they won't say anything that raises any more eyebrows across the league. All right, before we get into Greg Olson, and again, I want to emphasize how outstanding he is during our conversation. I have a few things I want to share. First off, you've heard of SPP, host of ESPN Sports Center, but do you know he has a podcast? Who doesn't? Be sure to download and follow SVPod wherever you get your podcast to hear SVP take deep dives with guests and topics in an entertaining way that only he can. That's SVPod wherever you get your podcasts. Also, The Ultimate Fighter's Back, the reality show that brings top MMA prospects together under one roof to compete for a UFC contract is on ESPN+. Plus. Featherweight champ Alexander Volkanovsky and Brian Ortega coach men's bantamweights and middleweights who've put their lives on hold for the chance to pursue their UFC dreams. Stream new episodes every Tuesday only on ESPN+. Plus. Sign up now at ESPNplus.com backslash UFC. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do. Big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Adam. And now the former Chicago Bears first round pick in 2007, a man that went on to play 14 seasons in the NFL, who was a three-time Pro Bowl tight end from 2014 through 2016. And for all the good he did, at the NFL level, for all that he produced, maybe his biggest contributions came in the city of Carolina, where he and his wife, Kara 
have donated millions of dollars, which he'll talk about here, to building a 25,000 square foot facility at Levine Children's Hospital in Charlotte, known as Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center. And their son, TJ, has been in the care of doctors at that facility since that time. Now, in a week where we celebrate fathers, a great father and a great man, Greg Olson. Greg, when we made the plans to have this conversation, it was about a month ago, two months ago, and we were going to discuss TEU, the tight end university that you're having here in Nashville from June 23rd to June 25th. And in the interim, you went through quite the situation with your eight-year-old son, TJ. He got a heart transplant and you were openly posting about it with your wife, Kara, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever, updating people to bring them along as TJ got the news that he now was going to get a new heart and go through it. And he came out of the surgery okay. And as we record this, he's still in the hospital, but I think he's coming home soon. So again, I wanted to just thank you for joining us, thinking that we were going to be doing one thing, which we'll get to, but asking you in the interim, in the week of Father's Day, to talk about what you and your family have had to endure here in recent days. Yeah, I appreciate it, Adam. And since the last time we spoke, a lot's happened. Um, you know, as you mentioned, our son, TJ, we brought him in about four weeks ago. Um, he was struggling a little bit. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, he was born with a really serious critical congenital heart defect. Um, he was born with only half of a heart. Um, it's called hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and he literally only has half of a heart. Um, due to some unbelievable technology and medical advances, they're able to rewire his heart to, to only work that way. So he underwent three open heart surgeries uh, before his second birthday, a handful of other small surgeries along the way, um, and was really starting to flourish. He was really doing well playing baseball, was getting into golf, finishing up, a, finishing up his um, second grade year in school. And we just, we just thought he looked different. You know, he was starting to get lethargic and starting to kind of wear down a little bit easier. We thought there was some late nights and, you know, just life. And we finally took him in to get a checkup at the clinic. And it was right after they laid eyes on him. They're like, we, we have some serious tests that we need to do. And Within a few hours, he was admitted into the ICU in pretty severe heart failure, and they notified us that we'd have to begin the process of exploring uh, being put on the donor registry. So about a week after that, so exactly uh, a week following his, admi his um, admission into the ICU, we got him listed um, on, the heart on the National Heart Registry, and a week, la a week later, exactly, uh, we were notified uh, just on a random day, I was walking in with lunch and they said, we have, to, you know, come meet us in the room. We got something to talk about, you know, and immediately your first instinct is something's wrong. And they said, we, we got an offer, which means they were notified that there was a match. And within 24 hours, he was on the operating room having a heart transplant. So it's been, it's been quite the whirlwind. Um, he's still in the hospital as of today, but things, uh, things have progressed pretty well so far. How long were you expecting it to take before there was a match for TJ? And what goes into that match determining whether that yeah. fits? It's a, pretty, it's a pretty fascinating process and one that we, we didn't really know anything about. So we knew transplant was always at some point going to be in TJ's future. Um, kids with single ventricle, which was his anatomy um, following all those surgeries. The oldest ones live into the, maybe their late 20s, early 30s, and then they have heart transplant surgery then. The idea is to prolong life. The older you get, the easier it is to find matches. 
it's very hard for little babies. That's why they don't do transplants when they don't have to on newborns because there's fortunately um, in our country, we don't have a lot of newborns who pass away. Thank God. Um, so they told us to be prepared anywhere between two and six months. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors, right? So there's like a geographic, so there's like a third party that handles this. It's called UNIS and they are like a sanctioned um, kind of like overseen group that handles procurement of organs, all organs, heart, liver, not just heart. And there's a million, so we underwent like a million tests. They test his blood type. They test for antibodies. They test you know, the size of his chest cavity. And there's all these criteria that you have to input into like this algorithm based on where you're located and then where they source the organ, the donor organ from, and then they recalibrate the waiting list. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're fortunate that you're at the top of the list because he was so critical. Um, you know, he was on some medicine that kept his heart pumping, that he had to be on 24 hours a day. He wasn't allowed to be discharged. So he was in what you call 1A, which is the most critical heart patients and they're prioritized. And then the next level is 1B, so on and so forth. So the good news is you, you're in the top of the group in your area. The bad news is you're in the hospital and you're critically sick, right? So it kind of goes hand in hand. And um, the hospital told us they averaged about 50 days. And we got a call on day eight. It's crazy. Wow. I like to get that call at that moment. You know, it's funny. I, I was picking up lunch. I actually, uh, I had something I had to do in the afternoon. My wife and I and our two sets of parents were kind of doing like shifts, you know, because I got two other kids at home and we're running them to baseball practice and my daughter's going to swim and, and we're trying to keep life the best we can. Right. right. So we're finishing up school. They're, you know, having their moving up ceremony. So life's going on. Right. So Karen and I are trying to play that whole dance. And um, so lo and behold, I'm, I pick up lunch, Kara and both of our parents are at the hospital hanging out with TJ. And I pick up lunch for everybody. And I call them and I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, meet me in the conference room, which is like a room down the hall where we could eat. And they're like, hey, come, come by the room real quick, and then we'll go eat. And I was kind of like, kind of a pain in the ass. Like I got my hands full, right? So here I am like not realizing why. And then I get in the elevator and the cardiac transplant surgeon just happens to be in the elevator, but he doesn't say anything. He just says hi. And we ride the elevator. The doors open. The transplant cardiologist is out. The so now the three of us are walking down the hall. I'm holding like bags of hot dogs and they're like, we need to go talk. Yeah. I'm like, is everything okay? They're like, everything's great. And now my wheels start turning. And the second I walked into the room, everyone's standing there. They got tears in their eyes. TJ smiling on the bed. And I'm like, they got a heart. And he goes, dad, they got a heart. And I was like, and I just gave him a big hug. And we knew part one of the journey was over, but now the hard part, you know, now we had to get through, you know, heart transplant surgery on an eight-year-old boy. And, uh, you know, all the things that come with that. Greg, in a case like that, what do you find out and learn about the donor, where this heart came from? So they're not allowed to share any of the personal information. Um, they can't even tell us what, in, what center it came from. Um, all they so in order to procure an, a heart organ, so again, it's, it's super interesting. And this is all stuff we've learned in the last month. There's about a 500-mile radius from Charlotte, where our Levine Children's Hospital, where TJ is. They draw about a 500-mile radius around it. And that's a give or take distance that they can get the heart back and they have about a four hour window. So the way it works is one 
heart tra- one heart surgeon and his team get on the plane and they fly to wherever the center of the organ donor is. But now there's other wow. centers also handling the procurement of other, other vital organs, right? So these donors in their last act of life, they're not just impacting one family, they're impacting up to seven or eight or whatever the number is. So they're all playing this game of like, let's figure out who needs what when, but the heart is the most time sensitive because it can only be out of the body without blood for, you know, they say about four hours. So they're doing all the work on TJ in Charlotte by the one doctor who's opening up his chest and getting him on bypass. And then he calls the other doctor, wherever they are in the other city and say, I'm ready. They clamp the heart. They do the surgery on the donor to remove it. They put it in literally like a cooler. They race to the airport and the clock starts. So from the time they clamp it, to the time it's put in TJ's body and and off bypass to get the blood flowing, is like this four hour window. So there's like a, there's like, there's a lot of like geographic location components to this whole like song and dance that these guys do. And the whole time he's in the operating room, you know, we wheeled him down to the operating room at like 6 AM last Friday. And so June 4th, and he didn't have his tart actually put in until like 2 PM. It's wild. And so that, so you would figure that heart came from somewhere pretty close because they know they're up against the clock. I'm not telling you it came from North Carolina, but it probably didn't fly in from California. Nope, 500, 500 miles. So they can go up into like the New York area. They can go down into like Georgia, Northern Florida would be, you know, ish. So that 500 mile radius takes you fairly far from Charlotte. Now I've heard, we've heard, of stories of organ donors where the story's told of who donated it eventually and the lives it saves and the joy it brings to these families that were able to help another family. Will you ever learn about who donated the heart to TJ? You know, I think, I, I think he's going to want to, you know, I think he's one of those kids and we're going to kind of let him steer that ship. I think when we get home and, and we feel like he's in a good place, both mentally, physically, um, you know, the way it works is uh, you write a letter and you write a letter um, expressing your appreciation to the family, um, you know, telling, sharing a little bit of information about the recipient, you know, so in this case, TJ, and you send it to like a third party procurement company who kind of manages this whole process. And then they, in return, give it to the donor family. And then the ball is in their court. And they said, you know, a lot of donor families do want to connect with the recipients and know kind of where it went and what, what life was able to be saved. Um, and some choose not to. And sometimes it takes 10 years. Sometimes they immediately respond. Sometimes they never respond. Um, but I think at the right time, that'll be something we try. Cause I think it's, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, you know, I, I think it would be something that I would like to know, you know, what was the life we saved, you know, at the, you know, in our big agony, in our moment of grief, you know, something right. so good came from it. Um, but it's hard. As of now, we, we know nothing. We don't know male, female. We don't know where. We don't know the age. We don't, we don't know anything. That's, that's incredible. And what is range of emotions like from the moment you find out that there is a organ donor to the time that TJ is going in for this major surgery to the time that he comes out of it. Okay. To the time you're trying to take care of your family and his siblings. No, like there's so much to this. It's mind blowing when you stop to think about it. 
Yeah, I mean, people use like the analogy, it's been a roller coaster, right? Like people use that, but it, that's literally what the last month has been. You know, we take him for what we thought was going to be a, hey, he has a virus. He's, we need to get him more rest. We need to up his medicine, you know, whatever, to being admitted within a few hours into the ICU telling you that more than likely your child's going to have to have a heart transplant. And it feels like your world is just crushed. And then over the next week or so, as you go through the process of getting listed, you hear all the success stories of families who say the best thing, especially for kids who were born with TJ's condition, so many families have told us it's the best they've ever felt, right? Like they didn't know what life really <laughs> was until they had a fully functioning heart for the first time. You know, for eight years, TJ doesn't know what a fully functioning heart means. He has, he doesn't, he doesn't know what that feels like. So to him, he felt fine. And, you know, we, we've even seen it just in the first week or so. Like, he's like, dad, it feels different. I said, yeah, buddy. I said, cause you, for the first time. So, you know, now you start climbing up and you're like, there's hope that the, the curse has been, it's been a, it's been a tough road. And, and as hard as it's been on us, it's been more so on him. Um, you know, to see a young child go through what he goes through, you know, just a routine day, you're talking about multiple IVs and chest tubes. And that's like the minor stuff that nobody even stops to think about, let alone having your sternum crack now open four times. We've been through it. The blessing is, We've been through it since he was born. This has been an eight and a half year journey. You know, we didn't just dive into this world last, you know, three weeks ago when they told us he needed a transplant. We've been living this congenital heart defect world since Carol was pregnant with him. And we've kind of, I don't want to say desensitized, but we've really been able to like wrap our heads around. This is our reality. This is never going to change. He is going to live. They say, you know, he lived with a, a, heart defect for his first eight years, all they're doing is switching out his heart defect. You know, having a heart transplant is not a cure. It is not forever. We hope it lasts a long time, but it's not a, okay, go home and live your life and it's over. It's just a different set of challenges. And I think over the years, we had no choice but to just come to grips with this is what it is. And if we just allow it to paralyze every other aspect of our life, we're doing our other mm -hmm. two children a disservice. We're doing each other a disservice. And we're doing the community a disservice. We, we really take a lot of pride. The reason we share those videos with TJ is not for, we've had sympathy. We know people love us. We know people care. The reason we share it is to let these other families who are in other hospitals around the country where they're not on a platform that they can share their story, who feel alone and feel like they're the only people in the world going through this they're not alone, right? Like here, there's other families out here and we need to raise that awareness and raise that and say, hey, we're with you. We're just like each other and let's go through this together. You know, and there's, there's a really interesting healing component to that that we've gotten a lot of, you know, I call Charles Tillman. When I was a rookie in Chicago, Charles Tillman's daughter had a heart transplant and I didn't know Charles that well at the time, but I remember him bouncing back and forth between training camp and not being there. And lo and behold, his daughter had a tra heart transplant she was very, very small. She was only a few months old. I called, I spoke to Charles eight years ago when we were getting ready to have TJ be born. I spoke to Charles three weeks ago. He was one of the first people I called when we got the diagnosis. You know, I've leaned on other people and we've had people reach out to us and tell them how much it's meant to hear our story and how much hope and inspiration it's given them. And we might as well turn something bad into as much good as we can. And that's just kind of been our mindset from day one. And when you post messages on Instagram, on Twitter, all over as you've done, it must elicit an incredible reaction. Do you get 
all kinds of people reaching out to you? Does it become almost burdensome? Like I sent you a text last week. I'm sure I'm one of hundreds of people to reach out to you, almost like when it's your birthday and there are a lot of people reaching out. And after a while, it becomes like it's too much. You wish people would just kind of leave you alone a little bit. You know, I think you see both sides of it. I think in the moment, it feels overwhelming, right? It feels like there's so much coming at you and so many people. Right. And that's, and that's you, you know, when we share our story publicly, we know that that's, the, that's what we're going to put on ourselves. But I also want other people to know, like, and that's why I really try to make it a point to respond to every single person. I maybe miss one or two here and there in the midst of it all, but like, I want people to know how much we feel and appreciate and love the support from strangers to friends, to family, to guys I went to high school with, to NFL coaches around the league who I didn't really know, but like the outpouring from all walks of our lives has just been, it's been an incredibly humbling experience. And to, I want people to know by responding back to them that it doesn't go unnoticed. It doesn't go unappreciated. And I think it's important that they hear back and know like, Hey, we're struggling right now, but the fact that you're taking five seconds to think about our son, we appreciate it. Was there one person or one message that impacted you more than another? I think the ones that really hit close to home or when, you know, when you hear from another heart family, um, you know, and we've heard from people on both sides of the coin, you know, we've, we've heard the really good success stories, um, you know, families that we've known that are a little ahead of us in this process, both, you know, been, been serviced here in, in Charlotte and got their, got their treatment at Levine Children's who've had heart transplants and tell us their kids have never been happier and everything's great. And that, you know, that fills your cup. And then we've also heard from the other side of the coin, both, you know, recipients of transplants who didn't have great responses, who come out to us and say, you know, we didn't have a similar experience, but we hope and pray that your son has the experience we wished for our child, hmm. you know, and, and those are hard stories to hear, but it's also real, you know, and, and, and people, and you find out the best of people when they're at their worst moments. And then the real other side of the coin, we've had many families in just the last couple of weeks reach out to us and say, you know, we lost a child and to hear your story and know that you guys were impacted by organ transplant and organ donors. We know someone out there is benefiting from our, our tragedy. And as hard as it is, it, it makes it a little, little easier for us to wrap our heads around to know that we brought joy to another family. So, I mean, we've heard it from all walks of life, all past experiences. And, you know, it really puts a lot of things into perspective. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a really complicated and it's a really vast, you know, outcome, you know, type world. Talk about things being put into perspective. I know it's an obvious question, but go ahead. How has it changed your perspective? You know, I think back a month ago, right. I'm, I'm coaching TJ's you know, and these are things that I personally need to work on and be better about, right? And you, you get wrapped up in, you know, everything else is good. So you, as humans, I know I do, you find other things that you need to like dive into and need to bother you and you need to stress about, right? It's just to fill that void. You know, I'm coaching TJ's like eight-year-old rec baseball team, right? And, you know, it's not, it's not serious by any stretch of the imagination, but here I am, I'm like sitting up at night and I'm like mad that we can't like field ground balls. And I'm telling my <laughs> wife in bed, like, I don't know why we're not getting better. Like, you know, we work so hard and TJ didn't, he, you know, he's better than that. Like, how did he not hit the ball out of the infield? It's coach pitch. He's better than that. 
this was like three days. He's playing baseball. Three days later, he's in the ICU in severe heart failure. And three days earlier, I'm mad. I'm, you know, frustrated that my eight-year-old kid, I'm like, Kara, he's better than that. I don't know what's wrong. And I'm sitting here like, you're a moron. Like, you need to get a grip. You know, like, and I hate, and I say this to my wife all the time, like, I hate the phrase, like, it gives you a great dose of reality because the fact that it took this to make me realize that is ridiculous, right? But sometimes the truth hurts. And, and there's a lot of things that I thought were important. And eight, nine years ago, when we went through this on the front end, you know, that year, it put a lot of things in perspective at that time too. And I think over time, when things are normal, you lose that perspective. And my wife and I are really trying going forward now to be like, we cannot ever lose what we've felt the last month because no matter how good things get, it could always get worse. So with that perspective, what will Father's Day mean to you this year? Oh, man. I'll tell you. So when we first got put on the registry, you know, our mind was wrapped around, like, can we be home? Can TJ be home before school? Not that he's not that he would go, but like, can we be back under the same roof before we send the other kids back and at least have a couple weeks of quote unquote summer together at home with nothing to do, right? Like that was our goal. So you're talking mid-August. And here we are, knock on wood, if things continue to progress, there's a chance that we're home under one roof by Father's Day. And it's just, Mm. you know, the amount of things that have lined up for this to work out, um, you know, starting with this children, you know, with Levine Children's Hospital being 10 minutes from our house, um, him being a good size, healthy kid, to being a good blood type, to not having built up antibodies from multiple blood transfusions, which is a huge concern for these kids, because then you're, you know, then you can't accept every donor, even if it's your blood type, your body has antibodies to say, no, I can't take that organ and it goes to somebody else. There's a billion things that could have gone wrong to make this a really long process. And they didn't. And they didn't. And we just consider ourselves super fortunate and super lucky and the prayers and everyone's outpouring of support. It worked. And we don't, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, fall on deaf ears. We, we understand we're very fortunate in this world and um, to, to be able to be home and just sit home and do nothing, but all five of us be under one roof is something that I don't want to think too much about because I don't want to jinx it, but if we could pull that off, it'd be pretty special. That would be about as good a Father's Day present as you could ever want, right? I mean, I don't know what else. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. And what's it like for your other two children to go through to see their brother in this type of condition, Greg? It's been tough. You know, TJ has a twin sister, and they're obviously very close. Yeah, Talbot is and TJ are twins. Um, They have an incredible relationship being twins. They just... It's, it's very unique. Um, and then he has, he has an older brother, Tate, who's only 16 months older than him. And typical brothers, they're at each other's throats, but they're each other's best friends. And for the other two to be so young and, you know, you can ask them, are you okay? Are you okay? And they tell you, yes, they tell you, yes. But, you know, until you really break them down and, and find out, you know, what's bothering you, talk to us. You know, kids don't understand why they feel the way they do. And the hospital has given us incredible resources for them to speak with, you know, pediatric psychologists and like making it a fun way where they don't feel like they're having like someone 
overly, you know, analyze them, but be able to share their emotions and realize like, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be sad. You know, you're going to see your brother, you know, in a couple of weeks and he's going to look a little different and he's going to be a little frail and you're going to have to be careful. Like those are all normal emotions, but for an, an eight and a 10 year old child, it's, oh, yeah. it's hard. You know, we, we've tried our best to keep their lives as normal as possible. You know, send them on baseball tournaments, send them to friends' houses to swim, let grandma and grandpa take them out for ice cream. Like we've tried to do as many normal things, but the five of us have not been together in, you know, a month. And it's hard for young kids to wrap their head around that. The other thing that's unbelievable about this to me is, and I don't know that a lot of people know this, and maybe this will be a chance to raise for the funds for it, but you and your wife, Kara, began the Hardest Yard Initiative right after TJ was born and his, to raise money for the less fortunate families going through crises like this. How much have you raised for that foundation for these other families? How many millions of dollars, Greg? Uh, we've, ra- we've contributed about $5 million over the years to Levine Children's Hospital. Um, our most recent project, we gave two and a half million dollars um, just within the last year or two to build what it's, so it's kind of ironic. So I'll tell you a quick kind of how weird things yeah. get. So the Hardest Yard started as a in-home, um, like privatized healthcare system where we'd send in nurses, doctors, therapists, and into the home to care for these newborn children who are discharged between surgery, who need pretty significant healthcare before they get back to the operating room to have stage two. So after we were able to really maximize that program, the hospital would come to us and say, you know, we need new bypass machines. Great. You know, things here and there. And then they came to us and they said, all right, we need somewhere to house the neurodevelopment program that my wife and I paid for to bring here from about three, four years ago. And one thing led to another, and we were able to create what is now, it opened in December, the Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center. It's a 25,000 square foot um, facility and it houses all the subspecialties in the pediatric cardiac world. Well, one of those subspecialty clinics is the transplant clinic. It was not any world that we ever were in. From the day TJ was born, we've never consulted with the transplant surgeon, the transplant team, cardiologist, none of them. We were in the single ventricle clinic and we'd use the other areas in the new center that we, that we built. Well, here, lo and behold, when we now bring TJ into clinic for the rest of his life, he's going to go into clinic at the Hardest Yard Congenital Heart Center at the rest of his life. And here, when we, when we decided to help the hospital kind of bridge this gap of funds to bring this new state-of-the-art pro- project to life, we didn't think we would use certain elements of it. And now here we are going to use it indefinitely. And it's just, it's just crazy how things work out. Um, and it's why we do it. You know, we didn't know it would benefit TJ. There was dozens of families who've used it since it's opened until today. And TJ never stepped foot in there, but he will, you know, in the next couple of weeks when he's an outpatient, he'll, uh, that's where he'll go see his doctors and clinic. What's amazing to me is you had the career that you did. You were four years in Chicago, nine years in Carolina, one year in Seattle, how many Pro Bowls? Three. Okay. Three Pro Bowls, all kinds of touchdowns, all kinds of catches. And it pales in comparison to the work that you and Kara have done in that community with that hospital to give hope to other people who are in a situation like yours. And people wouldn't even know that. And to think that you got traded to Carolina and have done all this good there, just amazing to me how life works sometimes like that. 
It is. We we got traded to Carolina. We had just had our first our first child, Tate, the one who just interrupted our, our conversation. <laughs> That's actually, okay. Asking me where his mask was. <laughs> and um <laughs> twenty twenty one, right? And so you know, <laughs> That's who, my he, daughter my daughter Dylan my daughter Dylan ducked into give me a kiss hello as I'm talking and I'm kind of like, hey I'm talking to Mr. Olden right now. Okay. <laughs> I, I get it. Hey, it's life, right? Um, I love it. But yeah, so we, we got TJ Tate was eight weeks old when I got traded to Charlotte. We had never lived in Charlotte. We didn't know anything about it. I played my first year for the Panthers. That following offseason, Kara finds out she's pregnant with the twins. Shortly thereafter, we get the diagnosis that TJ is going to be born. Um, you know, so this is like May. He's going to be born in October. So we start flying around the country. We start going to meet with, you know, the so-called top hospitals. And I'll never forget it. The doc, the head cardi- head of pediatric cardiology at Boston Children's, which is the pioneer of pediatric cardiac surgery. He, he said, he goes, hey, your surgeon down there, Ben Peeler, your cardiac team, Levine Children's Hospital. That's where you need to be. We didn't even know it was here. Right. Like we didn't know anything about Charlotte. So Levine Children's Hospital to me meant nothing. Right. Like it didn't mean anything to us. And um, within the next 24 hours, we went and met with that team. And now we've received nine years of cardiac surgeries and interventions and follow up care. It's 10 minutes from where we live. And it's unbelievable how much you've learned about it. I could tell just rattling off names, doctors, hospitals, treatments, you become uh, proficient and an expert in this area that you know. It's like learning a new language. I, I've learned more, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know much about a lot. But I'll tell you what, I, other than some doctors and cardiologists, I could sit around and hold my own and talk cardiology and heart function and surgery and care and options. I could hold my own in that world because for nine years, Kara and I have had Absolutely. no choice to learn it because if not, you sit in these consults and you sit around with these teams of doctors where they're telling you what your options are and what paths you, and if you don't understand what they're talking about, how are you ever going to make the right decision for your child, right? So to be an active participant in their care, you need to like do a deep dive into just like remedial understanding. So at least you have a clue what they're talking about. Right. And, you know, at night when you're fixing the pulse ox machine, cause it's beeping and you know, his pulse ox can't be below 80 or else they're going to put him back on the oxygen. You jump out of bed and you wrap it back around his toe. Cause you sure as hell don't want him back on the oxygen because, you know, you just learn all this stuff because you don't have a choice. Is he ever going to be normal? Like, is he ever going to be healed? Is he ever going to be recovered? And and, yeah. and I don't mean to sound, yeah. No, that's real. That's I'm real sorry question. if that, No, that's real. No, that's real. So his original anatomy, right? When they restructured those three palliative surgeries to make his bad heart, if left untreated, 100% of the time, the child would die. 25 years ago, if you were born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, 100% fatality. You, they, there was nothing they could do. They tried. Over the years, they've now developed this three-stage approach where they, in essence, rework the plumbing of the heart to operate with only the right ventricle. It's inefficient. It's not a great system, but you can live with it. Not forever, but you can live with it to reach somewhat into adulthood and then reconsider your options, right? It buys you time down the line. That he was never going to be normal with that. We always understood that that was never a fix. That was just a patchwork to extend his life and hope something else better came down the line. With the heart transplant, it's kind of a little of both. It's not going to last forever. Heart transplants on average last 19 years, 20 years. You know, so you're talking he's eight, 
you know, if, if medicine stood still, which it won't, right. if it did, he'd be 28. Now, in 20 years, five years ago, the average heart lasted 12 years, right? So every year it just exponentially improves with anti-rejection medicine, a better understanding of your, your immune system and what leads to the heart failing and all those things. They've made a lot of progress. Um, but as of today, no, this is not a fix. But in the meantime, he will theoretically, and from a lot of the stories that we've heard, he should live a better quality of life now than he did prior to the surgery. And for how long? No one knows. But we're talking a good amount of time. And with the advancements in medicine and healthcare and what they're doing now, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But his quality of life in the near future and going forward should be as close to normal as he'll ever get. Well, and with all that's going on, is it hard for you to take a job with Fox as you've done to be a broadcaster, a color commentator this upcoming season and for seasons to come? Is that hard now to leave home with TJ in the condition that he's in, with everything going on at the house? Yeah, I mean, if this happened in the fall, I would have had a step away. Um, you know, I, I say to my wife all the time, again, you talked before about how life works. If I didn't decide to retire, you know, if last season went a little differently and I felt like I wanted to do it again and, and this happened, I, I'm not sure what, if I would have been able to, to do it, you know, especially if I wasn't playing in Charlotte. I definitely couldn't have done it. It happened in the summer, so it, it kind of happened when I didn't have a lot going on. But if this happened in the fall as a player, as a commentator, I don't like to, I don't even want to begin what that would have looked like. I'm just not exactly sure, um, you know, how we would have pulled that off, but thankfully I don't have to worry about it. You know, I, I had all the time in the world to spend at the hospital. I had all the time in the world to take care of the other two. I had nothing really else to do the season, you know, with Fox that doesn't really start until September. Um, so at the time, we weren't really sure how long this was going to last. But, you know, the timing of everything, there's never a good time, but this wasn't a bad time. To transition to a couple of other things before I let you go, and thank you very much for your time. Yeah. You're going to be working with Kevin Burkhart, is my understanding. And Kevin Burkhart, oddly enough, called some of your high school football games back in the day. Yep. Did you have any idea that he called your games and what will it be like to work with him? Yeah, so I've known Kevin for a long time, um, as you said. So he went to college in my hometown in Wayne, New Jersey. He went to William Patterson um, University, which is actually where my mother went. And um, so he was working for like a local radio station, like an AM, like an AM radio station, WGHT. It was like 1500 or 1550 on the AM dial. And he was like a young aspiring commentator and he would call the high school playoffs or like the game of the week or whatever it was. So he, he always tells a story and laughs. So he, he comes on like Monday or Friday of each week and would like sit in my dad. My dad was my coach and he would sit in my dad's office and do like a production meeting wow. with my dad and like get different storylines. And then he would use it on the radio broadcast and call me. And I had an older brother who played at the time um, who was a great ahead of me. So, the other day, so Art Stapleton, who's now a beat writer up in New Jersey for the Giants, he at the time covered our team locally for the for the New Jersey newspaper. Uh, I think it was the record. And um, we got to know Art really well. Art and Kevin hosted like a playoff rivalry radio show at like a local restaurant. This was like in 2000. And he sent me and my dad the picture the other day. So it's my dad. Kevin Burkhart, 
Art Stapleton, Art and Kevin are the two like hosts. They're sitting there at the radio. My high school sitting on one side, our crosstown rivals in their jersey sitting on the other side of like a local hot dog shack talking about like the big upcoming playoff game. And there's Kevin Burkhart. And he was like 25 years old or whatever he was. And um, it's just like a really cool picture. And to think all these years later, life has come full circle. Uh, it's pretty cool. And now that 25-year-old Kevin Burkhart will be your yeah. partner, your TV partner this upcoming fall. And I think it's awesome that you would even know the name of a newspaper beat writer back in the day. I covered preps in Michigan, Chicago, Colorado. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever knew my name, Greg, ever. And nobody I mean, would remember the fact that I covered all those high school games back I'm in sure the day. They do. I'm sure there's somebody out there like, you know who used to write articles about me? <laughs> I was the man. You know Schefter? He used to write articles about me. I was the best running back. You know. Yeah, well, you, you, know, you know what's funny? When Juwan Howard got the job at the University of Michigan, my alma yeah. mater. Yeah. I covered one of his high school playoff games or uh, one of his high school playoff games. I went and found the article that I wrote in the Chicago Tribune about him, which I interviewed him extensively. And I forwarded him the game story of this playoff victory that he had that I wrote. And I remember, I remember being in the halls of the high school with Juwan Howard talking to him about the victory. You're reading over these names and the details. It's kind of fun, right? These are the kind of fun. These are the things that I did back at, back in the day. It was kind of now. And some of that was probably more fun than what you do now. Uh, in essence, like in the, the wholesomeness of high school sports. A lot more made, innocent. It was a lot yeah, more innocent. I mean. Like, and that's what I mean. Like, it wasn't the big business. But, I mean, it was competitive, and you know that. But, like, there was something supernatural and organic about, like, high school sports that was just hard to replace. But I cared so much about writing a good game story and getting yeah. a good clip to send to the next newspaper so I could get hired for a job somewhere so that one day I could do a pregame, a pregame Super Bowl show with Greg Olson down, down in Miami or whatever it may Fun. be, right? As yeah. we've done. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, TEU, which was the point of this whole podcast to begin with, what do we yep. need to know about it and what can you tell us about it June 23rd to June 25th in Nashville and I know, and I owe this to you before I even go there, that you have some big sponsors that help this event launch, right? We have Body Armor. They yep. deserve a little shout out, right? Bud Light, Bridgestone, Charmin, Levi's. Go ahead, Greg. I'm winding up. Tell us yeah. about it. So it's, it's funny. So I've gotten to know um, George Kittle a little bit over the years. We have the same marketing agent. And we've come across each other at a few different things, obviously played against each other. And when I retired, um, he just sent me like a quick text and, you know, great, you know, congrats, whatever. And he's like, Hey, if you ever get down to Nashville, I'd love to like get together. We can talk ball. Me and like five other guys around the league, Hawkinson, Tunyon, um, a handful of NFL guys. They all live down there and train in the offseason together. And I was like, I would love to. You know, I love going around young guys. I love talking the game. I went out to Ohio State and I went to Oregon. I've been down to, you know, a million different schools. I just love talking to the game and talking to young players and whatnot. So I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Well, from that conversation, we tied in Kelsey through like another group text or whatever. And the thing just kind of caught fire. And what started as, hey, let's get a handful of guys and work out down in Nashville one day this summer has now turned into a three-day event. Um, we call it TEU. We have over 50 NFL tight ends that are signed, sealed, and delivered coming. So now we had this problem. We were like, all right, we got to deliver for these guys, right? This isn't, this isn't some like small time 
let's find a park field. So Lim, uh, Limscombe Academy, which is where Trent Dilfer's the coach. Exactly. Yeah. So Trent is hosting it for us. He's got an unbelievable facility. He's been awesome. Um, we're like, we got to, you know, what can we give these guys to set us apart? And the sponsors you brought in, you know, Body Armor, uh, you know, was one of the first people that jumped on board. Bridgestone's a local, a local company. We were able to tie in some local charity stuff. So this is not a for-profit camp. The, the money that we've been able to raise through the sponsors goes towards the guys' hotels and putting them up and all that. And then all the remaining dollars, we're going to put it back into the nonprofit world. Um, we're going to have the Boys and Girls Club um, bring a bunch of kids over for the last day with Bridgestone and entertain them. So there's, we're really trying to tie this into the community and say, hey, we're hosting it here. We have 50 guys from across the league, but for three days, we're all going to be here and support Nashville. And guys just really caught fire. And, and we've had guys emailing us. I've had college kids email us, college coaches. Can we come? Can we come? The college thing gets a little crazy with sponsors, you know, Bud Light and beer. So we're sticking with just NFL guys, but it's been um, the, the response we've got has been incredible. Well, the Mannings have the Passing Academy, and now you've yeah. got the Tight End Academy, and it we sounds like it's Academy. It sounds like it's going to be a huge success. And you know what also stood out to me when you were saying that you are a phenomenal guy, and 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 I'm not just saying that. You know, I feel that about you. Travis Kelsey is one of my favorite guys to be around in the league. George Kittle is incredibly entertaining. Yeah. These are these are these are great fun guys. This is yeah. a great group of guys. It's right? gonna be awesome. Yeah, it's gonna be a blast. I mean, we got and we got guys from all across the league. You know, seventeen-year vets like Mercedes Lewis is coming. Love down him to, too. Down the Kyle, Pitt, you know, Pitts, who's a never stepped foot on an NFL field. So, like, we have a really cool scope of experience, backgrounds, colleges. Um, you know, guy trying to fight to make the practice squad or a five-time all pro right like we and that's what we wanted it to be this is not some like exclusive if you haven't made the pro bowl you can't this is a teaching this is a learning opportunity this is an opportunity to get up there in a classroom and for 20 minutes here you know george kittle talk about what he's been able to bring to his game and teach you routes and travis kelsey talk about leveraging a safety and how he snaps his routes and comes downhill you know whatever you know those we're going to touch on a lot of different things and then be able to bring that classroom talk out onto the field and allow guys to kind of work through it hands-on work with them teach with them and then at night go out and have a great dinner and and cut loose and relax and enjoy each other and get to know guys around the league you know it's kind of a cool fraternity it's a position that's really picking up a lot of interest there's a lot of you know the guys you touched on there's a lot of really cool personalities now that guys are starting to be kind of primetime players in the nfl and um we think this is an event that has some ability to be a long-standing annual tradition well good luck with tight end academy i know you'll be a huge success on fox this fall with kevin burkhart and most of all good luck to tj and hopefully he's home in time for father's day there will be nothing that would be any nicer for you for your family for everybody and i can tell you that everybody who's listening to this podcast is pulling for tj to come home as soon as possible i appreciate that thanks for having me on and uh i always enjoy talking to you and there he is, the former NFL tight end, Greg Olson, who will be a standout in his next line of work and already is making a huge difference. How many people could come on and talk about their son going through that process the way he has? Incredible to me. As a father of two children, if they have a cold, if they have anything wrong, I get so worked up and so nervous and so anxious. And he and his wife, Kara, have been through so much and to detail what it's like to receive a heart transplant, it was a total eye-opening education. Had no idea what goes into that. You hear about it, 
but nobody could imagine the detail that TJ and the Olsen family has endured on the way to TJ getting his new heart. And again, everybody is thinking of and pulling for TJ in his continued recovery. We wish him and the Olsons nothing but the best. We wish Greg a very happy Father's Day, and we thank him for his time and insight into what is really an incredible situation. All right, before we go, I want to wish a happy Father's Day to my father, my father-in-law, Jeffrey Schefter, Chuck Setti, men I love. And also want to say that on Father's Day week, my newest hobby is participating in this golf pool that my friend, and I could say his name here because he got insulted the last time I didn't mention his name, Eric Freeman, included me at the start of the year. And the way this golf pool works is you pick one golfer every week. And if that golfer wins a million dollars, you get a million points. And if that golfer misses the cut, you get zero points. And if that golfer finishes 36th for $30,000, you get 30,000 points. It goes 24 weeks. The season's divided into two halves. You cannot pick the same golfer. The first half of the season, you cannot pick the same golfer the second half of the season. And so we are now in the second half of the season. We are two weeks in, 10 weeks to go. And our team, fortunately, is in first place. But I could see how tenuous this is. And it's become my weekend obsession to the point where my family, they say, oh, golf is on again, isn't it? I watch just about every stroke on the PGA app from Thursday to Sunday if my golfer is alive. And this past week, I had Terrell Hatton who did a nice job finishing second. Although it's incredible to think that he finished second and a bunch of people had Dustin Johnson and I was living and dying with each bogey, double bogey, Dustin triple bogey on the backside, which had he just parred that hole, he would have been in a playoff with Gary Kigo, the South African golfer who went on to win the tournament this weekend. Point is, I love this stuff. It is consuming during the off season in a way I never would have imagined. And it, and I don't love this, but it has influenced my moods. If my golfer's doing well, I am a happy guy. If my golfer is not doing well, I'm pissed off. Xander Shoffley, we took him during the PGA week. He missed the cut. Man, was I angry that weekend. This week, we have the U.S. Open. And I come back to Father's Day again because of all the Father's Day gifts that my family could give me, there's nothing that I want more than the winning golfer at the U.S. Open for our weekly golf pool. I have an idea of who I'm going to pick. I'm not going to share it. Don't want anyone else in this pool. I think there are 30 people in the pool. I don't want anyone knowing our pick. And so this has been a torturous process picking each week. But this golf pool, man, fancy golf. I got into fancy basketball and it kind of took over my life. And I live, eat, and breathe that. And now it's fancy golf. So we go from football season into fancy basketball into fancy golf. It's a life of fantasy. And man, does it have me got my attention love that so that's my father's day wish that somehow we have the golfer on the right side this weekend whoever that turns out to be and i've got an idea of who it isn't going to be and the other thing i'll tell you about it is i got a friend who works on the corn ferry tour who used to work in the nfl a couple of weeks back at the memorial i had an idea of who i was going to pick i texted my partner i could show you the receipts we're going to go either patrick cantley or colin marikawa that was going to be our pick and my friend from the tour called me up and he said, talk to some of his friends in the golf community, which I asked him to do because I was so torn that week. And he said, Victor Hovland, 
I said, Victor Hovland, really? He said, yeah. So I turned in Victor Hovland and I watched Colin Marikawa and Patrick Cantley, the two guys that I was going to pick, wind up in a playoff for the final win. And I cannot tell you how that ruined my weekend. So we do not want this weekend ruined, this special weekend ruined. We want the right golfer. And so that's what we're rooting for. We're rooting for TJ Olsen to get back home. And we're rooting for our team to make the right pick. We'll see whether we can work that out. I want to thank Greg Olson for all his time today. Gave us an awful lot of it and really appreciate that. I want to thank my great producer, Christina Buswell, for putting up with me and putting together this podcast. I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning into another Adam Schefter podcast. And we'll be back again in this spot next week, one more week before we take a little mini summer break. And we'll be joined by the CBS analyst, the former Pittsburgh Steelers head coach, the man being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame this summer, Bill Cower, scheduled to join us for next week's Adam Schefter podcast. And until then, have a great Father's Day weekend. Be well and stay safe.